Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> yeah, right. You actually expect me to believe that Big Ben isn't a penis metaphor, Gavin? Ass. The following podcast contains... Hey, so dirty. It's no wonder no one listens to your show, David. It's awful. It's awful. So much cursing and the Schwanz jokes. No one wants to hear that. Shaggy Green never needed to work blue. Neither do you. People will like you for you. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you tried to convince that hot chick in the club that you were a federal agent because of your female body inspector t-shirt, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 356, Take a Look at My Big Johnson, where we talk about that time in the 90s when we all thought that funny t-shirts made us seem, I don't know, fuckable or something. Stay tuned. The What the Hell We Think Podcast is brought to you by Niles Novelty Tees, your one-stop silkscreen shop. Are you looking for a cost-effective way to promote your brand or business? In need of custom-printed shirts for a wedding or family reunion or just want a shirt that has Fart Monster written on it? Look no further than Niles Novelty Tees. We'll put anything on a shirt. No questions asked. Copyright? That only counts if you get caught. Foul language? This is America. You can say whatever you want on your chest. Need 300 shirts for your peaceful protest? Niles can slap your Patriot Group logo on them cheap and fast. When it comes time to let the world know what kind of person you are, say it on your chest with a Niles novelty tee. I don't know if you're aware of this, Gutter, but there actually was music recorded before 1989. What is this? You're going to wear this to the show. You're going to wear the shirt of the band you're going to go see. Don't be that guy. I know this will come as a surprise to some of you, but I'm not known for my fashion aesthetic. Nah, not, not, not really. When you have the kind of physique I possess, one which could charitably be described as girthy, you too might discover that any clothes you place on said girth are going to be more about deflecting attention to your body rather than attracting attention to your body. Because you are a disgusting fat body! I'm aware of this, and so I dress accordingly. Meaning I wear a lot of solid dark colors, all loose fitting, and everything is designed for comfort rather than any sense of style. Jesus, you look like a bag of dicks. My wardrobe? Lots of blue jeans and t-shirts. Indeed, anyone who knows me would be kind of shocked to see me in anything other than blue jeans and t-shirts. Got any other clothes? No. I mean, yeah, I do. I have a few button-down shirts, some polos that I can pull out in an emergency, oh, and a couple of pairs of, I don't know, I guess you call them slacks that I could wear for a professional setting, like a court appearance or the occasional funeral for someone that I know well enough to be forced to go to their funeral, but not so well that their family wouldn't be offended if I showed up in jeans and a t-shirt. How often does that happen? Not very often. Uh, mostly it's because I don't go to funerals or weddings unless I have absolutely no choice or I'm hoping to get laid at it. 
Also, if I have one wish for my own funeral, I just want people to say, At his funeral, everybody got laid. You know it because at my memorial service, there's going to be a big orgy pit right in the middle in front of my dead body. Having such limited sartorial range makes clothes shopping pretty easy for me. Blue jeans, check. Black shirt, check. Some kind of shoes, check. And I'm ready to take on the day. But I wasn't always so drab. Once upon a time, I was known for my cutting-edge fashion choices. No, come on. No, no, that, that, no, that would never happen. In my youth, I was known to express my hipness and rebellious attitude with a broad variety of t-shirts with causes and organizations I cared about emblazoned on my chest. FBI, female body inspector. You know the kind of style I'm talking about. Shirts that told you something about the kind of person wearing them and what they told you was is that I was big into co-ed naked events or wanted you to know about my Big Johnson. Before we dive into this pinnacle of t-shirt couture, we should take a minute to discuss the origins of the humble yet venerated t-shirt. We don't actually. No, we, we really don't. don't. This is a history podcast, and I, as your podcast host, take the obligation of you actually learning something when you listen to this podcast quite seriously. I don't think you do. Well, I do have a time goal that I set for each show, and without the background, I would never hit it. So let's begin with a little background before we arrive at the relevant portions of today's broadcast. According to my research... The first manufactured t-shirts were created somewhere between the Mexican-American War in 1898 and the First World War in 1913 when the United States Navy began issuing them as standard undershirts for a sailor's uniform. You can picture it in your head, I think. Those lithe young men in the steamy depths of a warship. Muscles rippling as they shovel coal into the furnaces of those war machines the seven seas their arms flexing straining against the tight white sleeves of their t-shirts their chiseled abs limbed in sooty white fabric as the sweat drenching their bodies made those t-shirts cling to their nipples oh hello sailor oh god you could seek my battleship anytime sorry where, where was i Oh, right, the, the, the history of the t-shirt. Well, the uh, actual term t-shirt got its name because, yeah, the basic shape, I feel, squint at it, kind of looks like a capital T. And it didn't appear in the English dictionary until 1920. F. Scott Fitzgerald is credited as using it in print for the first time in his novel, This Side of Paradise, when he wrote about how the taut white fabric would mold itself to the sweat-soaked bodies of young sailors highlighting their sculpted physiques like young gods in marble as they labored, flexing, bending, stretching their virile muscles in displays of barely contained lust. Dave? Dave? So, sorry, no, that's that's not what he wrote. He actually wrote, uh, quote, so in early September, Amory provided with six suits, summer underwear, six suits, winter underwear, one sweater or T-shirt, one jersey, one overcoat, winter, etc. Set out for New England and the land of schools, unquote. Which, honestly, come on. Which, honestly, which version of those two stories would you rather listen to? According to my source at realthread.com, the sources that I find for this show are just amazing. Quote, 
Though the t-shirt was created in the early 20th century, it was rare to see it worn as anything other than an undershirt. It wasn't uncommon to see veterans wearing a t-shirt tucked into their trousers post-World War II, but outside of that, t-shirts were almost exclusively used underneath proper clothes. Then came Marlon Brando and James Dean. In 1950, Marlon Brando famously donned a white t-shirt as Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire, only to be followed by James Dean in 1955 when Rebels Without a Cause. Thanks to these two founding fathers, the popularity of the t-shirt as a standalone outerwear garment skyrocketed, unquote. If you've ever seen a young Brando or pre-dead James Dean, you know the iconic look of the plain white t-shirt these two pulled off in the 1950s. Together with blue jeans and black leather boots, it spoke of you masculinity, and most of all, rebellion against the authorities that said a t-shirt should be worn under your clothes, not as your clothes. Rebellious? It was the 1950s. Everything was rebellious if young people did it. Seditious if anyone who wasn't white did it. As an upside, as far as I could tell from my research, Brando and Dean didn't steal wearing a t-shirt as an outer garment as a token of coolness from black people, so I guess we got that going for us, but when you think about it, just wearing a different kind of shirt instead of a button-down and calling it cool is pretty much one of the whitest things I can think of, so it kind of makes sense. Also, how could it be that rebellious? I mean, fucking Thomas E. Dewey, the GOP candidate for president in 1954, was having shirts printed with his first campaign that read, and I am not making this up. Do it with Dewey. Which sounds dirty, but I didn't mean it that way. This was probably the very first instance of a campaign t-shirt in history. The double entendre was probably not intended, but I'm betting that some dude who liked to wear a plain white t-shirt as an outer garment was snickering over it. But it was towards the end of the 1950s that the modern graphic t-shirt was born when a Florida company named Tropics Togs bought the license to print Disney characters on t-shirts that instantly became wildly popular with visitors to Disney parks and spread across the country. Tropics Togs continued to make Disney t-shirts well into the 80s and a vintage Disney shirt from the 80s in pretty much any condition can go upwards of 100 bucks with a like new or barely worn fetching much, much higher. By the 1960s, the graphic t-shirt was a staple of American attire. According to BrooklynMotors.com, which for some reason is blogging about the history of t-shirts, quote, in the 1960s, the Ringer t-shirt appeared and became a fashion staple for youth and rock and rollers. The decade also saw the emergence of tie-dyeing and screen printing on the basic t-shirt. In the late 1960s, Richard Elman, Robert Tree, Billy Bill Kelly, and Stanley Mouse set up the Monster T-shirt Company in Mill Valley, California to produce fine art designs expressly for t-shirts. Monster shirts often feature emblems and motifs associated with the Grateful Dead and Mary marijuana culture. Additionally, one of the most popular shirt symbols to emerge out of the political turmoil of the 1960s were t-shirts bearing the face of Marxist revolutionary Che Guevara, unquote. You know, you've seen that. They're still on college's campus to, college campuses to this day. For my money, the 1970s were the apex of graphic t-shirts when culture and garment combined to create some iconic imagery. That's going a little far to prove your point, isn't it? Oh, I don't think so. Let's see here. There was the R. Crumb keep on trucking shirts that told America that no matter how bad things looked right now, they should uh, keep on trucking, chief. Or the ubiquitous symbol of the 1970s, the smiley face. If there's a symbol more associated with the 70s, I don't know what it is. And also, despite what some of you might think, Forrest Gump did not invent the smiley face t-shirt. Another time I was running along, somebody who had lost all his money in the t-shirt business, and he wanted to put my face on a t-shirt, but he couldn't draw that well, and he didn't have a camera. Here, use this one. 
Nobody likes that color anyway. Have a nice day. Well, some years later, I found out that that man did come up with an idea for a T-shirt. He made a lot of money off of it. Yeah, that, that's not how that happened at all. It was a commercial artist by the name of Harvey Ball who created the sappy smiling face on a yellow background that somehow dominated American pop culture for a decade. His reward for his deed? 45 whole dollars. In 1974, photographer Bob Gruen took a photo of John Lennon wearing a $5 t-shirt Gruen had purchased on the street emblazoned with New York City. A few months later, everyone was wearing that shirt even if they've never been to New York City. In 1976, the spirit of 76 was on everyone's chest in those large bubble letters that was the official font of the 1970s. And of course, the two must-have shirts that emerged from the biggest graphic tee creator of all time, Roach Studios, Roach Studios still in existence today, by the way, were Disco Sucks, which it didn't, and of course, I'm Was Stupid, which everyone was. The I'm Was Stupid shirt with a finger pointing to the right or the left, depending on their flavor, probably wouldn't fly in schools today because someone's feelings would be hurt. But when I was a kid, they were considered the height of sophisticated humor. But it wasn't just the humor potential of the graphic tee that made them so incredibly popular. It was their ability to let others know something about you, the things you cared about, and most importantly, what bands you were into. According to the website AntiqueWeek.com, quote, the first rock concert t-shirt was produced by one of Elvis Presley's fan clubs during the late 1950s, and shirts featuring the Beatles go back as far as 1964. However, it wasn't until the hippie era in the late 1960s that rock concert t-shirts arrived as a viable commercial product. The late 60s also saw the advent of political protest t-shirts, such as those designed by Warren Dayton, who pioneered the use of t-shirts as an art medium. The proliferation of the rock concert t-shirt is due in large part to the famed concert promoter Bill Graham, owner and operator of the legendary venues Fillmore West in San Francisco and Fillmore East in New York City. Graham produced shows featuring such psychedelic acts as Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Quick Silver Messenger Service and Big Brother and the holding company often using t-shirts to help promote and make money for the bands. During the early 1970s, many of the rock concert t-shirts were cheaply made bootlegs produced without the respective band's permissions. Heavy bootlegging continued well into the 1980s, but is better policed today. The average concert t-shirt is black or white, though red and other colors are sometimes offered, decorated on the back and or front with colorful silk screen imagery of the band, their logo, and or some type of esoteric design related to the band or performer. Well-known designs include the big lips with tongues sticking out of the Rolling Stones, the naked wingman of Led Zeppelin, or the demonic-looking creature named Eddie from Iron Maiden, and many, many more, unquote. By my early teens, I was quite the cognoscenti of the concert t-shirt. For all, I had never been to a concert. The main reason for this was, uh... Um, my mom wouldn't let me. Well, probably she wouldn't have, but no... I uh, kind of lived off the beaten path from the kind of places that bands ever wanted to visit. For example, Guam, surprisingly, not on a major concert circuit. I remember the Flock of Seagulls was the biggest app to come through Guam when I was there in the mid-80s, and I wasn't listening to Flock of Seagulls at the time. Of course, while researching the show, I discovered that literally the month after we left Guam, Quiet Riot played there, and I would have killed to go to that. And to be honest... Where we moved to from Guam to Boise, Idaho, which was the nearest big town. I wasn't even that close to that. And that might as well have been Guam as far as good tours back in the 1980s. None of this stopped me and my friends from wearing the t-shirts, though. Among the metalheads of the 1980s, there were definite hierarchies of band shirts and their relative level of cool. 
at the top of the hierarchy were the blackest of black metal bands. Or at least to us, anyway. Slayer, Venom, Merciful Fate, Mayhem. The sort of shirts you had to hide from your parents and ran a substantial risk of being kicked out of school if you were caught wearing. So awesome. (laughs) One step below the black metal bands were just the metal metal bands. Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Wasp, Metallica, Megadeth, which weren't satanic, but kind of look like they might be to adults. Below that, you had your mainstream metal bands, your Dawkins, Quiet Riots, Twisted Sister, Motley Crue, still cool, but not edgy. And finally, you had your hair metal bands, Rat, Poison, Cinderella, Skid Row, maybe Warrant. That kind of stuff wasn't edgy, but it was appropriate to wear if you wanted to freak out your dad and not make people think you were gay or anything. For my money, the coolest metal shirt that I owned was Iron Maiden's The Trooper shirt, where Eddie is striding across a field of corpses, bloody cavalry saber in one hand, Union Jack in the other. My parents hated that shirt. It could never come up with any decent reason to forbid me from wearing it, which of course was the entire point of wearing one of those shirts in the first place. But you are not wearing that out in this neighborhood. That's the end of it. It was not until I was a young man in my 20s that I would discover my true fashion avoir, the shirts that would let the world know what kind of man they were dealing with, and that that young man was... A juvenile idiot. In the early 1990s, America was suddenly awash in the sort of cultural backlash against the 80s. You could see it reflected best in how fashion changed. The template of the late 1980s, its its neon color palette, light breezy fabric abruptly gave way to what could be called grunge, and grunge was not just in the music, it was also a fashion style. Lots of workwear, flannel, denim, dark tones, that kind of thing, and for a couple of years, we were all looking as though we had just left our third ship to the lumber mill and stopped by the cafe for a quick poetry session. By 1994, however, grunge was fading, and men's fashion in the 70s was suddenly back in, and that included the wearing of the graphic tee. However, The disturning man of the 1990s was not going to don a smiley face t-shirt. His graphic tee needed to say something about the moment he was living in, and that moment could best be summed up as... Oh yeah, tacky. So... Slate Magazine described the fashion moment in a 2015 article. Quote, In 1994, the human chest was the most direct way of letting the world know who you were and who you aspired to be. In a pre-social media world, the t-shirt was the most direct way to express affiliation with a brand, subculture, or even where you stood on the O.J. Simpson trial or Tanya Harding versus Nancy Kerrigan. It was 1994, after all. Thanks to a few enterprising bros, the new apparel options were plentiful. For the metal pothead or spiritual bro, there were the beach bums, peace frogs, and mountain life is good, tropics togs, and hyper color. Aggro or sporting dudes had, had and won, no fear and just have to. And then, of course, the most infamous and fondly remembered of them all, the I've got a big dick and bigger attitude bros who wore Big Johnson, Coed Naked, and Big Dogs, unquote. The earliest and arguably most famous brand was, of course, Big Johnson. Or Enormous Johnson, a fire-haired dweeb that was the brainchild of two brothers, Craig and Garrett Pfeiffer. Born out of an entendre-laden chicken shack in Baltimore and a surfboard company, the brothers created t-shirts that featured Enormous surrounded by large-breasted women doing all sorts of manly things, be it fighting fires, gambling at casinos, or even fishing. And beneath this would be a quippy slogan, like it's easy to reel them in when you've got a big Johnson. He was talking about his penis. The Big Johnson brand was also worth an absurd amount of money for a dick joke. 
It is probably the most profitable dick joke of all time. A 2007 article in the Baltimore City paper wrote, quote, according to Pfeiffer, Big Johnson grew and grew <laughs> until 1996 when the company peaked at over 20 million in sales per year. We went about as far as we could with the subject matter, he says, noting that department stores would often pull Big Johnson after the first complaint. And anyone who was a teenager or preteen at the time knows how much parents and educators loved Big Johnson, unquote. And the brand was big enough that it did that most dude of dude things by sponsoring a NASCAR race car. Would you, uh, would you like to guess which NASCAR team Big Johnson sponsored? Also represents a penis. It most certainly did. You may know a little too nothing about NASCAR, but if you were a dude or have dudes in your life, you've heard them giggle when this name was spoken. So I was a big Dick Trickle fan. I had the whole thing, you know, I had posters and cars, I had a Dick Trickle mailbox, and, and then my grandma actually ran into that with the car and knocked the dick off the trickle. <laughs> Poor Dick Trickle. Your name is funny, you were a good driver, and apparently a pretty good person. R.I.P. Dick Trickle, he, he killed himself like 20 years ago. Big Johnson even became part of a First Amendment case when a shop at the National Fire Academy sued after being forced to remove Big Johnson shirts from the store. There was eventually a settlement, and unfortunately, Big Johnson went limp when it came to being sold on federal property. Of course, Enormous Johnson was but the first of the tacky t-shirt scions to grace the national market. In the shadow of the giant Johnson were competitors come ripoffs like Coed Naked. Again from Slate, quote, Scott McHardy purchased the trademark for Coag Naked in 1991 with partners Mark Lane and Chaz Folick. Their tees had similar sex puns to Big Johnson, but they were initially focused more around college life and less around blue-collar hobbies like fishing and hunting. Shirts like Coed Naked Diving, Everything Looks Bigger Underwater, and Coed Naked Lacrosse, Rough, Tough, and In the Buff, riddled the East Coast. The first co-eds to party naked were the University of New Hampshire and McCarty's alma mater. The company quickly spread to New England resort shops and roughly 10,000 smaller independent retailers. Like its contemporaries, the brand's designs eventually broadened to include other professions, e.g. police officers, co-ed naked law enforcement up against the wall and spread them, and firefighters find them hot and leave them wet, unquote. Co-ed naked law enforcement t-shirts were so popular at my last duty station in the Air Force that they were unofficially banned, meaning they didn't officially forbid us from wearing them on base, but it behooved us not to be seen wearing one. So just like in high school, we would wear another shirt over the top of them, and then when we left base, we would take that shirt off once we got downtown so that we could show our co-ed naked colors. Less body, but related to the other brands, the Big Dog brand. More from Slate, quote, Big Dog got the blue-collar conservative bro mentality long before Jeff Foxworthy and Larry the Cable Guy were household names. Their tees featured an amalgam of macho ideology, jokes about pop culture, and get-off-my-long-grandpa-isms. The company ultimately transcended its novelty shirt roots, somehow becoming a lifestyle empire. At the height of Big Dog's retail powers, it had as many as 220 stores operating across the country. Its customers were just as big. The brand went up to size XXXXXL. 
a nod to the idea of being oversized as a lifestyle choice. You don't remember the medium-sized guy wearing the funny t-shirt says Big Dog Sportswear director Steve Doxson. You remember the guy that's XXXXXL. Most importantly, the Big Dog consumer believed in the Big Dog attitude. You want to be the top dog? You want to be the league dog? You want to be the Big Dog? Unquote. The dick shirt craze wasn't a long-lasting phenomenon, even if it was a widespread amongst a certain type of dude. Within a few years, they were relegated to the secondhand pile, even as those of us who once wore them proudly finally realized they were only funny because we were 23 years old and uh, kind of douchey. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. If anything, they were the pet rocks of their day or... Kind of like those goofy apps in the early days of smartphones that looked like it made you were drinking a beer if you tilted your phone towards your lips. The last gasp of analog silliness before the internet completely took over and we all expressed ourselves not with dick jokes on our chest, but with dick jokes in our email signatures and I am away messages. There is a vigorous market for secondhand tees from the 70s and 80s, by the way. The Tropics Togs, Mickey Mouse from the 70s and the early 80s. I looked it up. They go for 70 or 80 bucks. I think I mentioned that earlier. A Spuds McKenzie Bud Light t-shirt from the 1980s will fetch $50 or so. And I saw an Iron Maiden Killers tee from 1981 going for nearly a thousand bucks. My old Eddie and Union Jack Trooper shirt for nearly 700. And let me tell you, it ain't Gen X buying them because we are all way too fat to squeeze into our t-shirts from the 1980s. Graphic tees, of course, have never gone away. They're just as popular today as they were when Tropics Togs first silk screen Mickey Mouse's ball sack on one. I walk the streets of New York City today and see Gen Zers wearing Judas Priest t-shirts, bought it wherever it is the fucked kids buy their t-shirts today, and I gotta wonder if they like the music or they just think the design is cool, so... I flagged down a Gen Zer and asked one, and I, I didn't like the answer. Who is Judas? The reprints these days, and there are a lot of reprints, make finding a legit vintage shirt online really hard because as they're made to look as old, cracked, and faded as you know the as the uh, weather-beaten faces of those of us who uh, wore them back in the 1980s. Pro tip: If you're looking for a legit vintage band shirt from the 1980s or 90s. Ask your mom where she hid your dad's band shirt so he'd stop wearing them. Oh, important thing, because tacky never goes out of style. Keep your eyes open for a graphic tee with my face on it, if you want one. Within a week or two of this show hitting your feeds, we've got some coming out because we've always had some merch, but what we really need is a good t-shirt for you, our fans. In a way, I, I like to think this show carries on the, the Big Johnson legacy because for almost seven years, it's just been one dick joke after another that for some reason, people laugh at and occasionally give us money. But if we ever do go on tour, though, our concert merch, I promise, will be just as awesome as Iron Maiden's. I'm going to have Gavin <laughs> recreate the Trooper shirt walking across a field of empty Jameson bottles holding, <laughs> holding a microphone and the Union Jack because he will really, really hate it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
that is it for our show this week. See, I told you this week would be more chill. After three weeks of quasi-heavy politics and pretty much every cop show ever film, I, I wanted to bring it back to the stuff we do best around here. Find some significant facet of pop culture and then wring every ounce of content out of it like a sweaty sailor wrings out his shirt, his glistening chest just uh, shimmering in the hot sun, begging to be touched. Dave, Dave, come back. Sorry. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, 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 do, get, uh, I do get lost there sometimes. Speaking of oversharing, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods. It helps to fi- others to find us and realize that maybe you've shared a little too much there. If you'd like to keep the show in plain black t-shirts, kick us, kick us a buck on patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. I promise I will not use it to make a co-ed naked podcasting shirt, except that's totally going to be the shirt we're going to make with my face on it. Do all the things that Jeremy tells you to do in the closing, and he will make sure that I am not actually naked on the co-ed naked podcasting tour. And so for me, Dave, silk suit, black tie, I don't wear them, and I've got no reason why. Bledsoe, producer, actually cufflinks and a stick pin make for a very sharp presentation. Gavin and all the fictional Big Johnsons on the show, we want you to know that every girl may be crazy about a sharp-dressed man, but when you got a Big Johnson podcasting t-shirt on, they will always want to see your microphone. And we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast or on Facebook as what the hell podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. A couple of dick jokes to put her at ease.